Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In 2016, a group of Yale University undergraduates circulated a petition calling on the Yale English Department to, quote, decolonize the syllabus. The petition specifically called out the major English poets course, which focused on eight white male poets and was a prerequisite for the English major. According to the petition's anonymous author, quote, a year spent around the seminar table where the literary contributions of women, people of color, and queer folk are absent actively harms all students. In a column in the Yale Daily News, student Adriana Mielli criticized the department, saying that students are, quote, taught how to analyze canonical literature, but not taught to question why it is canonical. The canon came under fire the same year at Reed College, whose only mandatory class is Hume 110, a humanities course traditionally focused on authors like Homer, Sophocles, and Plato. A student protest group called Reedies Against Racism issued a statement declaring, quote, We believe that the first lesson that freshmen should learn about Hume 110 is that it perpetuates white supremacy. Reedies Against Racism protested every Hume 110 lecture for a year, holding signs saying, We demand space for students of color and stop silencing black and brown voices. The protests sometimes sparked heated arguments among students. Similar protests have occurred at other schools, including Oxford University. Here is student Chi Chi Shi describing her goals in an interview by the Oxford student newspaper Churwell. We want to heal the crimes of empire. Um, we want to heal them in Oxford University. Like, you can see today that like, the curriculum we learn, um, the spaces we inhabit, they're still completely shaped by history that has never been atoned for. In the last few years, students at Stanford University, Matteo Ricci College, the University of Pennsylvania, and elsewhere have voiced similar worries about an overly narrow, overly canonical curriculum. The figure at the heart of many such protests is William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has come to symbolize the traditional Western European canon. His plays are the most quoted, most anthologized, and most frequently taught works in the English language. If you do a Google image search for literature, you'll get cartoons of Shakespeare's face. He's so famous 
that writers expect their audiences to recognize his work even when they don't cite him by name. My dearest Angelica, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. I trust you'll understand the reference to another Scottish tragedy without my having a name to play. They think me Macbeth. Ambition is my thought. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda singing the title role in his smash hit Hamilton, an American musical. Hamilton tells the story of American founding father Alexander Hamilton in a groundbreaking mix of musical styles. To praise the innovation and artistry of Miranda's work, critics have called him, you guessed it, a modern-day Shakespeare. But if Shakespeare represents the canon, Miranda does just the opposite. He is working to change our canonical view of American history, just like the student protesters are doing with literature. Today's student protests are the latest in a legacy of canon critiques. The movement first gained traction in the 1960s, when countries around the world were rebelling against colonial rule. This sparked intense debate within American English departments about the need to decolonize the curriculum and recover literary traditions that had been suppressed by European colonizers. Debates about the canon are heated, provocative, and recurring, because the canon isn't just a list of books we read in English 101. Canons reflect what we value as a culture. This is a fight over whose voices we listen to and whose stories we tell. As critic Paul Lauder wrote in his 1991 book, Canons and Context, quote, canonical issues are not simply matters of academic dispute. What is at stake, after all, is what a society sees as important from its past to the construction of its future. Who decides that, and on what basis? Canons have been rightfully challenged for the way they have excluded key voices and narrowed our vision. But sometimes the way we think about canons is also too narrow. What if instead of keeping people out, canons could be the best way to invite them in? Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. Today we're looking at artistic canons, the debates they provoke over power and exclusion, and how artists like William Shakespeare and Lin-Manuel Miranda have used canons to foster creativity and community. Our notion of canon didn't start with literature. Rather, like so many things, it started with the Bible. In 367, Athanasius of Alexandria published a list of the 27 books that would become the traditional Christian New Testament. He described these books with the Greek word kanonizomena, or canonized. The Old and New Testament canons were established in 382 at the Council of Rome and reaffirmed in 1545 after Protestant reformers began to challenge the authority of certain biblical books. The stakes in these decisions could hardly have been higher. The difference between non-canonical and canonical books was the difference between merely human recordings and the divinely authorized Word of God. What is canon is infallible. The idea of infallibility originally applied only to the divine author. But in the secular canon, critics sometimes apply the idea to human authors, especially Shakespeare. Shakespeare is, according to the New Oxford Shakespeare, quote, the most quoted, most taught, most translated, most anthologized, most filmed, most televised, most broadcast on radio, most interneted, most admired author in English. And this admiration almost grants Shakespeare divine infallibility. Shakespeare scholar Daniel Pollock Pelsner wrote in The New Yorker that when past critics, quote, found a clumsy passage in Shakespeare, an attractive solution was to blame it on an inferior co-author. Shakespeare's sanctity was reinforced by biblical terms used to distinguish his legitimate creation, the canon, from doubtful material, the Apocrypha. According to Rory Lufnane, associate editor of the New Oxford Shakespeare, 
Shakespeare's universal fame and the quality of his writing function as a virtuous circle. But I think our value judgment of the quality of early modern drama is impacted upon by our greatest familiarity with Shakespeare, because we know Shakespeare so well, and we hold him up as the barometer of that, of that cultural production. Shakespeare became the standard for measuring other authors, in part because he was embedded in English departments from the beginning. When British and American universities first created these departments in the 18th and 19th centuries, Shakespeare was a core part of the new curriculum. When Harvard founded its English department in 1872, for example, the junior elective in English covered grammar, the history of the English language, and three plays by Shakespeare. In the 20th century, American scholars began formulating canons for a wider audience, and Shakespeare was heavily featured. Mortimer Adler's popular 1952 series, Great Books of the Western World, included every single one of Shakespeare's plays. And when professor and cultural critic Harold Bloom published the Western Canon in 1994, he named the best authors as Homer, Dante, Tolstoy, and Shakespeare. In England, as in America, Shakespeare became the subject of academic study and examinations. But it was more than that. Shakespeare became an emblem of the nation itself. Shakespeare's not just doing writing great theater, he's actually forging this idea of what it means to be English. That the English still to this day, their national identity is sort of created by what Shakespeare does. That's Oscar Eustace, artistic director of New York City's public theater, speaking at Goldman Sachs in 2018. That Shakespearean identity was on full display when London hosted the Olympic Games in 2012. The opening ceremony was inspired by Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, It began with Shakespearean actor Kenneth Branagh reciting some of the play's most famous lines. Be not afeard. Be not afeard. The aisle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes. The 19th century British critic Thomas Carlyle would surely have endorsed this performance. In 1841, He wrote that Shakespeare was, quote, the grandest thing we have yet done. Consider now if they asked us, will you give up your Indian empire or your Shakespeare? Should not we be forced to answer? Indian empire or no Indian empire, we cannot do without Shakespeare. But if Carlyle thought he'd rather give up the empire than Shakespeare, he also saw Shakespeare as key to keeping the empire together. Noting how British people had spread around the globe, he asked, What is it that can keep all these things together into virtually one nation? His answer, Shakespeare. Quote, This King Shakespeare, does he not shine over us all as the noblest, gentlest, yet strongest of rallying signs? From Parramatta, from New York, wheresoever English men and women are, they will say to one another, yes, this Shakespeare is ours. We are of one blood and kind with him. As the British colonized India and Africa, they did bring Shakespeare with them precisely as Carlyle said, to unite the different peoples as one nation. As Professor Leah Marcus wrote in her book, How Shakespeare Became Colonial, quote, Shakespeare's study was initiated throughout the British Empire as part of a process of acculturating the natives into Englishness. In the mid-20th century, however, European colonies around the world began attaining independence. These uprisings challenged colonizers' political supremacy and Shakespeare's canonical supremacy. Writers like France Fanon, born in Martinique, and Chinua Achebe, born in Nigeria, said their nations needed to reclaim their own national traditions and reject the colonizers' claims that Western European literature constituted a universal standard of value. Achebe spoke about this dynamic in an interview with Bill Moyers in 1988. 
He described his experience in English courses in Nigeria's first university, where he read British classics like Joseph Conrad's 1899 novella Heart of Darkness, which follows a sailor named Marlowe on his journey up the Congo River. At first, Achebe identified with the white protagonists, but eventually his perspective changed. I began to look at these books in a different light. Um, I I realized that um, I was one of those um, savages jumping up and down on the the beach. I was not on Marlowe's steamer, you see, as I had thought before. And uh, once that kind of enlightenment comes to you, you realize that you need to write a different story. Someone has to write a different story. Demands to open the canon did not go uncontested. In the 1980s and 90s, the so-called canon wars raged. Conservative-leaning politicians and authors expressed fears that American universities, swept up by multiculturalism, political correctness, and radical liberal ideologies, would abandon the canon, thus endangering education, society, and Western civilization itself. Conservative media still shows alarm when the traditional canon is threatened. In 2015, a high school teacher named Donna Dustbieber published an op-ed in the Washington Post explaining why she wanted to stop teaching Shakespeare. She begins by suggesting that her diverse students just aren't that excited by Shakespeare and should be able to choose for themselves the books they read. Then she makes a deeper critique. Quote, As long as we continue to cling to one white man's view of life, we perhaps unwittingly promote the notion that other cultural perspectives are less important. It is far past the time for us to dispense with our Eurocentric presentation of the literary world. Here's the reaction from John Phillips of the conservative website PJ Media. So she's a white English teacher, but she refuses to teach the greatest writer in the English language because he's a white guy. Put into the curriculum by white people. Does she want to teach instead? Well, she wants to teach African oral traditions in English class. To paraphrase the bard, how well she's read to reason against reading. To Phillips, dropping Shakespeare in favor of African oral traditions is an unacceptably radical move. But enlarging the canon is not a new idea. In fact, the range of authors taught in literature courses used to be much wider. According to Harvard English professor Jim Ingle, between the early 1900s and the end of World War II, the canon was, quote, large, amorphous, expanding. Anthologies at that time contained hundreds of writers. What was new was when in the 1960s, one American anthology dropped down to 28 authors and another only 12. So when students and critics push for a more inclusive canon, they are in some ways calling for a return to what the canon used to be, something larger, less focused on a few major writers and more open to a variety of styles and approaches. They are also acknowledging what the canon always is, a product in flux. It's simply a a mistake to think that we could ever come up with an adequate representation of a huge uh, culture such as our own, let alone something even bigger called whatever, Western culture, world culture, whatever we want to talk about it as. So we do the best we can, creating certain moments at least in which we can conjoin in a recognition that this is wonderful, this is pleasurable, this is, but never, I think, imagining, never allowing ourselves to imagine that we've actually got it now and the door is closed. This is Stephen Greenblatt, a professor of the humanities at Harvard University and the editor of the Norton edition of Shakespeare's works and the Norton Anthology of English Literature. 
Greenblatt sees it as part of his job to bring new voices into a flexible canon through his work on the Norton Anthology. At the point that I took over the Norton Anthology, there, there was an enormous amount of interest in recovering the voices of, of women writers who hadn't been uh, represented in the original Norton Anthologies. There was something like nine women writers in the first edition. And then there was a, a, a push to bring in more voices of women that had been neglected um, and ignored. But it may not be enough just to simply expand the canon, not if there's an inherent problem with canons themselves. The British Empire used its canon to, quote, civilize the peoples it colonized, enforcing the idea that British culture was superior to the cultures of colonized populations. Oscar Eustace notes how canons have similarly been used within countries to enforce class hierarchies. The canon can be used as an exclusionary force and used deliberately as an exclusionary force. A canon is something that allows me to separate myself from the unwashed herd because I am familiar with the great works of culture that they aren't, proving that I am an educated person and they aren't, and I have thus separated myself from the masses. If canons are simply a tool to reinforce privilege, then they're promoting inequality no matter which text they include. But does that mean we have to get rid of canons altogether? Or can we change how we use them? There was another ancient notion of canon besides the biblical one. In his Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle uses the Greek word canon to refer to a light, leaden rule used by the builders of Lesbos. This leaden rule was a tool flexible enough to conform to the shape of the stones. For Aristotle, a canon was not something ideal, unchanging, and authoritative. Instead, canons were guides that provided a helpful framework for creating new things. And that's precisely how Shakespeare and Lin-Manuel Miranda use them. When Shakespeare wrote his plays, he had to create something new because he was faced with a new kind of audience. The first public theaters in London had just been built, and these theaters attracted people from all sections of London society. Shakespeare was the first British author who was faced with a absolute diverse cross-section of his society from illiterate groundlings to aristocrats and Oxford and Cambridge graduates. And he had to write stories that were non-religious, secular stories that entertained all of them at the same time. In this task of entertaining everyone, Greenblatt finds that Shakespeare succeeded. He is like the best of our popular culture. We Americans should certainly understand this because we are masses of producing works that please everyone. Uh, whatever we want to name, The Godfather, let's say, or Hamilton. Very few people are not completely pleased by this. And Shakespeare is the master of that. He's the great model for how to do that. Shakespeare had to write for a mixed audience. Miranda, on the other hand, made his audience. He wrote Hamilton for a diverse cast. In a show about the Founding Fathers, nearly every role is played by an actor of color. He also intended the show to reach a diverse audience of all tastes and backgrounds. Lin-Manuel is actually reaching out and making the theater audience more diverse racially, more diverse uh, in terms of education, more diverse even in terms of money. Audiences everywhere have embraced the show. It is the first musical for 50 years that becomes the soundtrack for the whole country. To achieve their near-universal acclaim, Miranda and Shakespeare use a similar technique. They sample. So often we find in Shakespeare's plays that he's responding to 
um, and adapting and revising and using, recycling these materials from earlier authors. Very few of Shakespeare's plots are, are original to the author. Shakespeare didn't just work with other texts. He also collaborated with other writers, to an extent far greater than most of us knew before the new Oxford Shakespeare was published. We can say with greater certainty that many of Shakespeare's works heretofore taught to be solo authored are in fact a product of Shakespeare and one or more uh, other authors. Um, By my count, it's about 38% of Shakespeare's works include the writing of another author. Like Shakespeare, Lin-Manuel Miranda drew heavily on the work of other artists. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. In Hamilton, The Revolution, Miranda explains that the play's signature song, My Shot, was inspired by Broadway numbers from West Side Story and My Fair Lady. But also by hip-hop classics like Nas's The World Is Yours, Tupac's Picture Me Rollin', and Eminem's Lose Yourself. The whole play draws on a wide range of musical traditions and styles, as Miranda explained in a 2016 interview with actress Emma Watson. The music I use is um, all the music I can get my hands on. So it's hip-hop music and it's R&B music and it's Beatlesque music for King George. Part of the power of that musical is he is referencing equally musical theater and hip-hop and rap music. So that's part of his technique for drawing audiences in who are quite diverse from each other. And the recognition that Lynn is referring to a cultural uh, history or a cultural canon that they feel part of draws them in and then allows them to hear a lot of other things that are from canons they didn't feel part of, most specifically the historical canon, the founding of America. Both Shakespeare and Miranda created groundbreaking works in part because they used canons in a groundbreaking way. They took the classics of many traditions and combined them. This allowed for breakthroughs in creativity and for breakthroughs in community. Miranda deliberately sampled famous works, canonical works, from different traditions so that audiences would recognize his shoutouts. By sampling the canons they know, Miranda makes the audience feel included in the show and in its story. There are so many kids now who have seen a black George Washington rapping, who have seen a black Thomas Jefferson, a Latino Hamilton or a black Hamilton. And that, um, you know, gives them ownership over the founding of America and over the, the, the various documents and literature that stem from that, that otherwise they wouldn't have felt. So Lynn's references to other canonical works are absolutely part of his strategy in building his own. Canons have been used to create dividing lines between who's in and who's out. But Miranda used a collection of canons to include as many people as possible, both in his audience and in the American story. When used this way, canons can do the same work that was so important to Alexander Hamilton himself, strengthening American democracy. In a 2018 talk at the Harvard Center for International Development, psychologist and author Jonathan Haidt spoke about some of the same founding fathers dramatized in Hamilton, and about the problems now rocking the nation they founded. They gave us the uh, longest-lived liberal democracy in in human history, as far as I know. Uh, But how's it going? Corporate domination, political sclerosis, social polarization. Our democracy today suffers from serious challenges. To explain how we can meet these challenges, Haight drew a parallel between a fine-tuned liberal democracy 
in a fine-tuned universe. The universe needs certain physical forces to be balanced just right in order to make life possible. The same is true of a democracy. Specifically, we need a balance of centrifugal and centripetal forces, forces that pull people apart and forces that bring people together. You have to pay attention to the balance between them. And if society has a surfeit, a surplus of centrifugal force and very weak centripetal forces, what do you think is going to happen? If a society has too many divisive forces, it will fracture. For all its benefits, diversity can be a divisive force, temporarily eroding our social bonds. So how can we unify a country as large and diverse as America? Thomas Carlyle asked the same question about the British Empire. For Carlyle, the answer was Shakespeare, a common cultural touchstone that could unite a mixed population. Today's political science may offer a similar answer for the United States. Hate cited political scientist Karen Stenner. We can best limit intolerance of difference by parading, talking about, and applauding our sameness. Ultimately, nothing inspires greater tolerance from the intolerant than an abundance of common and unifying beliefs, practices, rituals, institutions, and processes. Here in the U.S., this sameness can't be sameness of ethnicity or religion or beliefs. But we can share the same works of art. It's something many of us already do. Last spring, millions of people tuned in at the same time for six Sunday nights to watch the last season of HBO's Game of Thrones. Millions of people also turned out for films like Wonder Woman, an action movie with a female director and a female star, Black Panther, an action movie with a predominantly black cast, and Crazy Rich Asians, a romantic comedy with an all-Asian cast. A lot of people have cried the second they see the Asian faces on screen. It means something to kids and people to see images that reflect themselves. That was Constance Wu, one of the stars of Crazy Rich Asians. Actor and drama professor Ray Proctor, who is African-American, had a similar experience when he saw Black Panther. I looked at the superhero and I was like, in the Marvel Universe, I'm a hero. I got to, I, I saw myself. I saw myself as the hero of the narrative and it was based on something as simple as my skin color. I'm not the comic relief. I'm not the bad guy. I'm not the villain. I'm not the, the, the buffoon. Um, and, and I'm not just the hero. I do good things. I do bad things. That's the way I watched Black Panther. Like Hamilton, these movies aim to represent audience members in ways they hadn't been represented before. They also aim to be blockbusters, high-profile projects that reach huge numbers of people. Because representation isn't just about telling your story. It's about having people listen. And that's where canons come in. Literature by women and people of color, the stories of American immigrants and slaves, these have always existed. The difference happens when these stories become part of the mainstream story. It's when canons change that culture changes. I don't think it's possible to sit and just be a passive receiver for the play Hamilton. I think you actually have to engage with the play. And in that engagement, you find yourself going, well, who am I? When it says, uh, we the people, what is my role in that we of the we the people? What is my role? What is my identity as an American? Eustace agrees. The thing that Hamilton does is remind us that there is one strand of the idea of America, the founding idea that is about ever greater inclusiveness, ever greater equity, ever greater um, democracy. 
Just as our country needs informed voters, it also needs informed consumers, people willing to keep up with and to shape our ever-evolving cultural canons. When we choose what to learn and teach and watch, we are choosing what to bring into the cultural spotlight. If we intentionally choose to diversify our canons and to partake in them together, then canons can unite us. And that's something our diverse democracy needs. I, I uh, have every reason to agree uh, that it's wonderful actually to have shared uh, experiences of common texts, that it actually is a, is a democratic principle, that it takes us out of our little enclaves uh, and allows us to enter a different kind of space, a space uh, of, uh, how should we say, um, secular epiphanies, uh, moments in which we share uh, some uh, insight and pleasure together uh, that's provided by things that we've all read. That's, after all, the way in which our own contemporary culture often works. That's why we uh, see movies and uh, to get, uh, talk about them with each other, listen to music together. We don't have to let canons be instruments of ideology and exclusion. We can let them be guides to inclusion, pathways to the improbable places where millions of people, however diverse, can find something that they share. Maria Devlin, the producer of this episode, shared with me a story about how this can work in practice. So I was in the checkout line at the grocery store, and I noticed that the woman online in front of me was wearing a Hamilton t-shirt. I told her that I liked the shirt and I loved the show, and she told me she loved the show also, and we started talking about it, and the cashier overheard our conversation and told us that she had seen the show when it had come through St. Louis, and she loved Hamilton also. So here we were, the three of us. I was this young, white student. This woman with the shirt was um, an older, apparently affluent, white woman. The cashier was a middle-aged African-American woman. And all of a sudden, the three of us, thanks to Hamilton, had this exciting thing in common. If canons can make these moments more common, we shouldn't just scrap them. We should take a cue from Hamilton. Let's not get rid of canons. Let's steal them. This episode was produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Anita Danvantri, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us in a few different places. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. We're also on a new audio platform that me and Galen Beebe have been building called Lyceum. Lyceum is an app that makes it easier to discover great educational podcasts to listen to and have conversations with the hosts and other listeners of those shows. I'll be posting updates and answering questions in the Ministry of Ideas discussion room on Lyceum. So I encourage you to download the app, search for Ministry of Ideas, and join the discussion. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, 
a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. And today, I want to tell you about a Hub & Spoke show called Subtitle, a podcast about languages and the people who speak them. Hosts Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay dive into the research that looks at how polyglots are able to seemingly attain fluency in multiple languages. This is the first modern-day study of the polyglot brain to find out what, if anything, sets them apart. So check it out at subtitlepod.com or anywhere podcasts are available. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.